0: rather than introduce new laws and regulations right every time we have these technological advancements or developments, um, we need to look to the frameworks that have withstood the test of time, which are typically found in constitutions, in human rights law and civil rights law, and in that way are sort of agnostic to what happens in terms of technological development and have a much better shot at being sustainable and future-proof.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Parton, and you're listening to The Feedback Loop by Singularity. Before we jump into today's episode, I'm excited to share a bit of news. First, I'll be heading to South by Southwest in Austin on March 14th for an exclusive Singularity event at The Contemporary, a stunning modern art gallery that is in the heart of downtown Austin. This will include a full day of connections, discussions, and inspiration. With coffee and snacks throughout the day with an open bar celebration at night so if you're heading to south by and you're interested in joining me and having some discussions meeting our community of experts and change makers then you can go to su.org slash basecamp dash South by Southwest, which I will link in the episode description. So you can sign up for this free invite only event. And just to note, it is not a marketing employee when I say that space is genuinely limited. So if you are serious about joining, you probably want to sign up as soon as you can and get one of those reserved spots. And in other news, we have a exciting opportunity for those of you With a track record of leadership who are focused on positive impact, specifically, we're excited to announce that for 2023, we're giving away a full ride scholarship to each one of our five very renowned executive programs. where you can get all kinds of hands-on training and experience with world leading experts. You can find the link to that also in the episode description. And once more, time is of the essence here because the application deadline is on March 15th. And with those notes out of the way, we can get on to this week's guest, who is a lawyer, author, and senior research associate at the Institute for Ethics and AI at Oxford University, Elizabeth Raniere. In this episode, we will be exploring Elizabeth's brand new book, Beyond Data, Reclaiming Human Rights at the Dawn of the Metaverse. This takes us on a tour through the ways in which our obsession with data and data policy has failed and distracted us, and how in order to update our modern regulations of technology, we need to actually instead return to the pillars of basic human rights law that are already well-established. In essence, there is very little need to separate the digital from the physical. Elizabeth argues that to think about this otherwise allows for the government to become outdated. And for corporations to be able to get away with lots of bad behavior as they fall through the legal cracks, it's a strong argument and one that I enjoyed partaking in. And so without further ado, please welcome to the feedback loop. Elizabeth Raniere. To get us started, I would just love if you could give us a bit of background about yourself and especially as it relates to your new book beyond data.
0: Yeah, sure. So I can give you maybe some personal background that might be interesting. Um, So as you noted, my book is called Beyond Data, Reclaiming Human Rights at the Dawn of the Metaverse. It is out on February 7th. Um, And for those of you who have the book or will have the book, um, I begin with my preface where I actually talk about um, a personal anecdote from college. Um, where a classmate of mine by the name of Mark Zuckerberg undertook this experiment of scraping photographs from residential house uh, websites of females and basically creating a face mash of them on a website to have people rate these women against each other based on attractiveness. Um, and this is an experience that really stayed with me throughout my adult life. Uh, particularly when I went on to law school and after law school to become a privacy and data protection lawyer. Um, And it's an experience that sort of shaped the way that I thought about privacy and data protection over the last 15 years of working in this field. Um, Because one of the things that I felt then, and I still feel strongly now, is that the nature of the personal violation and sort of the experience of the harm seemed really detached from the way that we think about and talk about, um, I hate this term, but online harms Mm -hmm. or digital harms um, in the tech policy space. And so when I had the idea to write this book, uh, the first thing that sort of came to me was the memory of that experience and the the sort of indignity and injustice that I felt and the way that I feel that these types of experiences will just become more and more prevalent for people the more technology is deeply embedded into our day-to-day lives and how as a lawyer I felt so frustrated that the paradigms we use to think about these harms don't reflect that reality in particular how a almost singular obsession with data um, has become this kind of rallying point for law and policy um, and for industry as well. And how, in my view, that sort of led us astray from really addressing what's at stake in this inherently what today is very much a cyber physical reality and increasingly so with new technologies.
1: Yeah. I want to push on something here that I thought of when you first mentioned kind of your background. And that is when I think about how people portray themselves online now, basically vlogging every second of their life, the kind of the culture of attention that we have. Do you think There is as much concern with this generation about their privacy as maybe you had using your value systems when you were going through school? Because it feels like it's probably switched. The zeitgeist has maybe changed. And I'm wondering if you, what you think about that.
0: Yeah, it's a great question. So I think people still share the same feelings and the same sort of intuitive sense that there's something very perverse about this behavior. I think what's changed is that. It's becoming increasingly hard to opt out of it.
1: Mm-hmm. So,
0: um, actually, a colleague who's also published through the MIT Press, um, a book called "Digital Lethargy" by Tang Hui Hu, um, is really talking about this um, lethargic uh, sort of, you know, late capitalist experience of having to participate in society by offering ourselves up through these digital means, and so. Um, We see this very much where all of our digital infrastructure has effectively become gamified, right? To incentivize us to, um, further share and further engage and, you know, give our attention. This is true across, um, you know, professional networks like LinkedIn that have really created those incentives, um, in the, in the professional context. Obviously, this is pervasive in, more traditional social media, where it's really um, gamified friendships and social connections in that way. It's true now in finance, we see this very prominently um, with a lot of fintechs that are trying to create these incentive structures and these behavioral patterns. Um, It's certainly going to be increasingly true when we talk about what I call in my book, metaversal technologies, uh, like augmented and virtual reality. Um, So I don't know that the emotional or cognitive or felt experience is necessarily different. I think we have been put in a position where, um, the cost of participating in society means sort of learning to live with that discomfort or yeah. even putting it aside, um, for fear of, you know, social isolation. Um, personal cost to reputation or professional capital. Um, You know, it's this sort of idea of the network effects, which is a more technical concept of, you know, all my friends are on Facebook, therefore, how could I not be? Um, But in a much more um, social political sense of that, which is again, this notion of, it's the cost of participating in society. So it would be interesting to do some empirical research on this, right? In terms of how mm. people actually feel. And yeah. um, is there this impetus and this exhaustion, this digital lethargy that in fact is there, but, we, but is not maybe at the surface, at the forefront of our minds um, as a result of the toll of living in this way.
1: You also mentioned in your uh, intro there that our obsession with data is basically a very unhealthy distraction, and it's causing us to basically become blind to some of the key things that are actually at stake here, very important things. Can you kind of talk a little bit about what that is?
0: Sure. So our obsession with data, you know, as I sort of outlined in my book, is a relatively recent um, phenomenon in the sense that before we talked about data, before we talked about data rights or data protection or data privacy. Uh, we had constitutional and human rights around privacy. Um, those constitutional and human rights were broad rights that envisioned an almost physical sphere or, or boundedness around an individual and were concerned about interferences with you know, your home, your family, your private life. Um, in many legal traditions, your correspondence, which for some feels relevant to this discussion. But they weren't um, focused on on this notion of data. That wouldn't emerge until we had the um, sort of PC revolution, as people call it, or we had, you know, computers enter the home. Um, And what you'll you'll see in my book, which I outline, is that um, it's interesting how the early data protection laws that came online very much um, reflect the sort of adoption of personal computing uh, in different places. And so, as you know, as populations had more personal computers, um, so too did they have more data protection laws emerging around the same time. Um, And so what happened there was as we, as data sort of became a more um, tangible thing in terms of digital data, right? So sort of binary zeros and ones, um, these computers that entered, that permeated, that penetrated this physical space, this physical boundedness, there was this instinctive reaction again, there was sort of a, an inherent knowing that there was some violation occurring here of this original notion of privacy, but the feeling at the time was that it wasn't quite captured in these constitutional and human rights. And so there was this desire to articulate a more specific uh, right around uh, the protection of this data that was now stored in in these digital databases. Um, and And that's where I think we took this sort of, what I call the ICT turn, right? The information communications technology turn where privacy sort of went off track. And um, I was actually meant to give a talk a a couple months ago with the title um, was Data Protection a Mistake. Uh, And the the title was intentionally provocative um, and unfortunately COVID got in the way. But the idea was that we were so confused by this new technology that kind of came along and entered our space that it was difficult to reflect on the powerful constitutional and human rights that we had, including around privacy. And there was a sort of, um, you know, very urgent reaction to have new laws. And we see this happening now, right? We definitely see it happening around AI and machine learning and other technologies um, without really assessing what the existing frameworks could do. And so by introducing these, we get this, this, cluster of data protection laws, uh, both national and eventually the emergence of um, international legal frameworks and principles um, that really center data and look at the privacy, the security, the confidentiality of data that speak to technical means and methods of securing and protecting data um, in a way that were important but in many ways sort of moved us away from the original focus of human rights and constitutional laws, including privacy and sort of diverted the conversation in a way that in fact became very technocratic. And this sort of became a boon to private industry because there are myriad ways to um, say that one is protecting, securing uh, and keeping data confidential. Um, by technical means. And that's a very hard proposition to challenge for many reasons, you know, there are concerns around IP and trade secrets and accountability and transparency and, and, and a whole array of things that make that challenging. Um, that sort of allowed industry to comply with laws and regulations with, without really addressing the spirit of those laws and regulations and the motivations for them, which are really these fundamental, you know, um, harms to people that infringe upon basic constitutional human rights. Um, And so that that sort of ICT turn led us down this road of proliferating laws and regulations around data and a conversation that also began to, to fixate on the notion of data. And in my view, what we're getting to now and where we're actually at a very interesting point in time where we're starting to see the limitations of that framing, we're really starting to meet the limitations of so-called data protection or data privacy laws and regulations. Uh, This is particularly true, again, around things like AI machine learning. Um, And so I think it's a perfect time to start to question that framing and particularly the the technocratic nature of it Mm -hmm. and to really think about what we need as people. Because for all the rhetoric around human-centered technology and human-centric laws and the term human centered in general which is just everywhere when you really look at it you know when you really survey what's out there in terms of legal frameworks the vast majority are data centric right yeah it, they talk about data as the end all and be all and really focus on its protection and its security and its confidentiality so that's the main premise of my book
1: yeah well i mean one insight that i found particularly poignant while reading your book is that since we view data as you said as kind of like an inert substance rather that it, rather than something that is, I would say almost like intrinsically and intimately linked to a person, we've been much more okay with exploiting it and, and focusing on it because we can push aside the, the human rights issues. But what are some of the issues that are being caused with this approach? What are some of the human rights harms, I guess, that you would point to that are consequential? um, from this focus on data rather than on its connection to the individual.
0: Yeah. So I think that you're absolutely right. That data is, has this air of sort of, um, objectivity of neutrality of otherness of this thing over there in a database, Mm -hmm. and therefore is very detached from the lived human experience. And, um, you know, is, it appears to be lower risk than it is in actuality when it is a much more in- intrinsic and integrated property of our lives. Um, I think that the biggest concern that I have, the biggest, um, uh, sort of human rights related risk that, that I've seen that this has created is that we basically zeroed in on two human rights. <laughs> Out of you know dozens, that is more than 30 uh, traditional and then derivative human rights, um, you know would include even more. Um, and those two are privacy and free expression. Um, now, that may have been appropriate at a time when we did have these clearly delineated separations between online and offline, between digital and non-digital, between you know databases and um, it may have been appropriate in a time of these neat binaries. Um, it's not going to work. It doesn't work now, and it's not going to work going forward because privacy, as we've already discussed, has basically been gutted to become this very narrow and technocratic notion of the privacy, security, and confidentiality of data. So it's lost its sort of intrinsic um, value and power of being this broad constitutional or human right that's concerned with the integrity of the person and the sort of boundedness um, around themselves and their experiences. So the dilution of privacy into that current form that it takes in most laws and regulations um, means that if that is one of two rights that form the pillar of our approach to human rights in respect of um, what I actually call the post-digital realm, right? because again, we don't have these neat separations anymore, then um, that's a weak starting point. And then, of course, the other that's commonly um, prominent in these conversations around technology governance, including um, around privacy is this tension between privacy and for expression. And for expression also um, takes center stage often because we have a lot of conversations now around things like content moderation and um, because much of the focus on technology Governance is actually on um, the most prominent players that we see and feel, you know, the social media companies, even though in reality, this post-digital cyber-physical reality is in everything and everywhere. And um, there there is a much more complicated uh, infrastructure at play here. Um, But I think the narrowing down of a body of human rights to those two is the result of this sort of singular focus on data. Where, of course, if we're talking about data, then it would appear that we have a tension between sort of securing it or allowing the sort of free expression of information. But that's not that's not adequate because what we've come to see very um, palpably, you know, particularly in the last five to ten years, I would argue is that um, data collection and uses of data have resulted in harms that um, have to do with much more than privacy and free expression, that have to do with um, discrimination and harassment and inequitable treatment, um, that have to do with exclusion, exclusion being a really big concern here, um, and you know, sort of a growing digital divide that have to do with um, an important body of human rights that's almost never part of the conversation, which are economic, social, and cultural rights. Um, now, if you think about this other body of human rights law, They speak to these concerns um, and they speak to even more um, uh, emotionally charged things like um, the right to benefit from scientific progress, right, which can include uh, something like access to a vaccine. They include um, the right to participate in the culture, which has implications in lockdown and the way that people relate. Um, And, you know, even beyond that, even in the more sort of traditional realm of human rights the the body in which um the body of law in which we get things like privacy and free expression which are the civil and political rights that people are more familiar with there're still concerns around freedom of association mm-hmm. and assembly we saw this very much with protests um you know we saw this with black lives matter in the states um during the pandemic so the impact of things like these covid um tracing apps and exposure notification tools and, they, and again, later on around vaccination passports um, need to be looked at and assessed in the context of these very broad array of human rights, rather than just in the narrow context of something like privacy, which in and of itself has already been gutted into yeah. a very weak notion of its original form.
1: Well, and you mentioned there the the kind of tension, I guess, between the private sector and the government and it makes me think specifically, you know, that, that a lot of these issues are the domain of the government or should be the domain of the government and legislation, as you discuss in the book, seems to be uh, failing, <laughs> I think, lagging behind pretty dramatically. So could you kind of point us towards any, uh, any legislation that has taken place, something maybe like a GDPR and how successful it's been? or some of the new things that might be happening in the American government? I believe you mentioned in the book that there has recently been an attempt, that but it might not be a very strong one, even at that. Um, so I guess just broadly speaking, how how is the legislation being handled?
0: Yeah, sure. So I'll start with um, what I do allude to in the book. And so <laughs> the nature of academic publishing is that um, You know, it's a little bit slower than people would probably appreciate. Uh, So I had to address some of this uh, after the book went into publication. A lot happened, right, between the sort of final manuscript and um, when the book is actually released. And part of what's happened is that um, uh, in Europe, we have an entirely new legislative package on the table um, put forward to uh, regulate things like what... European regulators are calling digital platforms or digital services. So we have um, things like the Digital Services Act, the Digital Markets Act, uh, a Data Governance Act, a proposed Artificial Intelligence or AI Act. So this whole suite of um, laws designed to sort of update, you know, the, the European legal frameworks for the way that um, technologies, the sort of way that we interact with technologies today, and um, I think what's concerning about the approach there is, well, there are a couple of things that are concerning, and it's premature to really talk about this because some of the proposals are now law, but haven't really been tested yet, right? They're coming online now. And some are still like the AI Act is still in draft form. Um, but if I had to sort of project where they're going, we see a lot of the same mistakes uh, being made as as were made with respect to data protection. Um, So one of the first concerns is that even though these laws always tend to or purport to be technology neutral, they're never actually technology neutral. Um, they're in fact, very specific (laughs) about the types of technologies at play and the types of technologies that they seek to regulate. And so the concern there is that they're never sustainable or future proof. And this is where, um, there's this perception always that the law sort of lags behind the technology, right? And how will the laws ever keep up? And by the time we have the AI act, we need the quantum regulation, right? And that's sort of the the logic. I think that the workaround, the answer to that is to leverage existing laws and legal frameworks, including a much fuller body of human rights law. So, rather than introduce new laws and regulations, right, every time we have these technological advancements or developments, um, we need to look to our arsenal, right, of, of the sort of um, the frameworks that have withstood the test of time, which are typically found in constitutions, in human rights law and civil rights law, um, that again, are not starting from the perspective of data or AI or algorithms or platforms. They're starting from the perspective of people or citizens, and in that way are sort of agnostic to what happens in terms of technological development and have a much better shot at being sustainable and future proof. I think that this impulse to sort of constantly introduce new laws and regulations is really a distraction. Um, and there are different parties at the table that have different incentives to introduce those. So obviously, from the standpoint of governments, you know, there's the obviously the desire to appear to be doing something about something that suddenly of deep concern to the public, right? And, and perhaps unfamiliar um, on the part of corporations, it's often in their interest to ask for new laws and regulations rather than have them comply with existing legal frameworks, right? So it's this very sort of um, defer, delay, distract tactic. Um, on the part of individuals, again, there can be a sort of moral panic around things. and um, And that can sort of encourage these cycles on the part of the public and private sector. So um, in terms of what Europe is doing, I I think it's laudable. I think it. um, a lot of people do look to Europe as sort of a moral leader on tech governance. And I think that the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation um, has contributed to that reputation um, in part because as you know, in the United States, we don't have federal privacy legislation, for example. But I think there are a lot of shortcomings, for example, in what the GDPR has done, Uh, in particular, it being interpreted and sort of um, implemented in a way that, again, has been very technocratic, Mm -hmm. very focused on data, very easy to circumvent, um, creating a lot of um, the appearance of compliance, but in many ways, not making us feel um, any safer. And not anticipating, for example, things like, um, generative AI technologies, right? And not protecting anyone from these sort of new use cases that, um, that they, that these laws never could have because they were so narrowly focused on protecting data. Um, so I think, and a concern there as well is that, you know, the GDPR, for example, has been replicated the world over. It's sort of been mimicked, um, by national and, and regional frameworks, um, in different parts of the world and, you know, that's concerning to me because what it means is that rather than be a sort of global floor, it can be a type of global ceiling where that's the best we can do. And in reality, um, I think the best we could do is really, again, to to look for a broader human rights-based approach. So that's what's on the table in Europe. I think in terms of, you know, uh, what I alluded to in the book that's happening in the States is a lot of people are investing... Um, a lot of hope and faith in this federal comprehensive privacy legislation. Um, it has gone through many iterations, it has many interesting features. I don't think it's going to provide us with the kind of um, outcomes and safety and security that we're looking for. Um, I do think it will help companies in the sense of, rather than having to comply with the patchwork of state laws and regulations, right? They can sort of have one um, one standard federally. Um, but I, I think that it's still largely focused on data. Um, it's, it's still largely built on um, the past sort of 50 years of um, data-centric laws and regulations that stem all the way back to uh, the emergence of the fair information practice principles and uh, subsequent frameworks, um, the types of laws that eventually provided the foundations for um, the data protection directive in Europe in 1995 and now the GDPR. So, um, it's important. <laughs> I think again, there's important, um, moral value to uh, the United States having federal privacy legislation. I think it's important in respect of multilateral and bilateral, um, conversations around mm-hmm. technology governance. And, um, and, and I think is kind of table stakes, but I don't think that it's going to address really the issues that are going to wreak the most havoc yeah. on people now and going forward.
1: Well, in, in, in a perfect world, and obviously you can't, you know, if you have an answer for this, great. Uh, <laughs> but I know it's a big ask, but is what would you propose or what are some of the idea solutions, you know, whether it is second order and it is focusing on data, or if it's first order and really focused on human right laws instead, what are some of the things that you you would ideally want to see happen to kind of constrain some of these invasions, I guess, into, uh, into privacy and into free speech and maybe even into autonomy for that matter.
0: So I want to see us stop pretending that tech companies, right. Are different. <laughs> I want to see us, uh, stop pretending that we don't have laws that address these things. Um, so for example, I want to do away with this notion of online harms. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a thing. If somebody is targeted, harassed, um, abused, quote unquote, online yeah. or by digital means, they are targeted, abused or harassed, full stop. Um, if, you know, you have a, again, with air quotes, a digital product or service, uh, that is defective or creates, um, you know, some kind of uh, danger, bodily danger, otherwise to someone. Um, I want to see our existing liability frameworks apply. Um, if you have, you know, an AI tool that results in um, a sort of discriminatory impact in hiring, I want to see our laws around this apply. Now, for example, that's an area where we see places like New York City introducing new laws and regulations, rather than saying. The means are irrelevant. The fact that you're using an automated system or an AI tool is irrelevant to the fact that the outcome and the impact and the harm is the same. So effectively, this exceptional treatment of technology companies has to stop, right? We um, it, it's increasingly irrelevant, right? What the what the means are, and I think that this kind of constant scrambling around. Okay, well, now what does it look like? And now, do, now what do we do? Rather than, okay, who are we? What are our rights? These are well established, um, pillars of sort of, uh, of, of law, frankly. Um, and, and it's true across the board, rather than scrambling every time there's a new, you know, shiny toy and rather than allowing, um, different actors, but especially the private sector to use that as a call for, you know, we need <laughs> new laws and regulations. It's, you know, hang on. Um, No, you are. And again, who's to say what a tech company is anymore, right? I mean, arguably, everyone is a tech company. Everyone's a digital company. Um, It's, in my mind, a completely useless term. But the fact that we still hold out this um, notional sector as something different and exceptional is a huge part of the problem here. I don't care if you have an app that does banking. uh, And this, you know, that you're you hold yourself out as a fintech, if you're providing banking services, right, you need to be um, held to those standards. If you're an app that provides therapy or you know medical um, services, you need to be held to the same standards. So, I, it really, I think it's the biggest problem we have is is this exceptional magical thinking around tech companies, and it, it's deep and pervasive in the culture. It goes all the way back to you know the cyber libertarians of John Perry Barlow's day and the Declaration of Independence of cyberspace and I'm very concerned because you have a similar rhetoric now around this idea of the metaverse. Um, but as long as we don't frankly call BS on that view, um, then the law is, um, will be ineffective because laws are not meant to be. Um, it's not to say that we don't ever need new laws or regulations. It's not to say that we don't need to reinterpret existing rights. So for example, you know, there's a big debate now around neurotechnologies and do we need, you know, new rights <laughs> around the integrity of the brain and cognitive privacy and all this. And, well, for example, you know, um, I have a friend uh, who's a scholar in the UK, Susie Allegri, has written about um, freedom of thought, which, again, is a, is a core, is a fundamental human right that is completely under leveraged, which has largely been taken for granted because it's largely been impossible <laughs> to interfere with someone's uh, freedom of thought. However, you know, that may not be the case going forward. And so um, in my view, it makes sense to, again, leverage what we have um, before we think about layering on and introducing new laws and regulations that work against each other and ultimately dilute their efficacy, which leaves us more vulnerable.
1: Do you think that the current laws, the non-digital laws, are largely capable of handling the digital space, even, you you know, because you say it is a second order kind of manifestation. How well do the the laws as they have existed in the past really cover the, I guess, nuances that do arise from the technical space? Do you think that it's pretty well handled, uh, even with if as long as we're open to just some simple tweaks and adjustments here and there?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. And it's a question I get all the time. And I think that, you know, there's different sort of strata, right, of law <laughs> uh, and, and legal tools. And mm-hmm. I think you've got sort of um, the the highest level or depending on your spe- perspective, the foundational sort of bodies of law, right? So human rights and constitutions, and d- there, there are these sort of um, uh, Meta layers and strata of of where we derive our laws from, right and those are typically codifying um, some kind of normative theories, um, ethics, things like that those those are sort of pillars, and I think that those, in my view are still um, very powerful if again as I was explained before, extremely under leveraged as a starting point for this conversation so for example, uh, in the last ten years we've seen a proliferation of principles around AI ethics. Um, and these have come from everyone from governments to private sector, the multi-stakeholder groups to civil society, academia. And they start to articulate these, you know, I think there are now 150 or maybe 200 sets of principles that are all, you know, slightly different permutations of each other and are all kind of dancing around things that are actually reflected in in human rights law, but are not articulated in that way or not starting from that. Um, or, or not the starting point of the conversation. Um, increasingly, I'm seeing a call to just use <laughs> existing human rights as the foundation of AI governance, which I think is great. I think the 10 years bought private industry a lot of time um, and have definitely allowed the technology to develop to a point where you know, there are more concerns around our ability to govern. Um, but that's just one, one layer. So you have this sort of uh, foundational pillars of law, then you you get more granular, right? And you introduce laws and regulations, and then you get even more granular because in order to implement those laws and regulations, you have to have very specific rules, you have to have very specific policies. Um, In that granularity, I think that's where a lot of the um, changes and updates and um, sort of iterations that respond to specific developments in technology and technological tools is most relevant. So I feel like that's where, you know, I think you asked me about, um, how do you account for that sort of those changes and the emergence of of new technologies? And I think where you account for them is at that level of granularity. But if you don't root that granularity in these less movable pillars, right, in these more foundational concepts, particularly when it comes to rights, um, then you're sort of unmoored, right? And you can't anchor governance in anything because there's just continual distraction and noise. <laughs> um, and I think this is sort of what's, what's happened with data is that it's, um, again, the signal to noise ratio is really off here. And um, if we were actually starting from the point, from the perspective of the human, as we purport to do, but in reality, we don't, um, I think it would be a lot easier to hold this tension between these foundational concepts, these foundational rights and the more spe- specific articulation um, at the granular level in response to new and emerging technologies.
1: Yeah. Well, as, as we come to a close here, I wanna have you maybe address a few different type of people uh, who might be listening to this. Maybe the average person who's just, you know, not really involved in any big decision-making, maybe an entrepreneur who's starting a business or an executive that has a bit of sway in their company. For these individuals what can they do to kind of push towards this world that you would like to see happen you know is there something that they can do to kind of move in a more human-centric direction that has that human rights focus rather than the the data focus
0: yeah um so for individuals i think individuals have been have really been given the short end of the stick right Mm. in the last 50 years i think Way too much of the burden has been put on people, on individuals um, to sort of safeguard themselves <laughs> and their rights. And while I think that um, it's great for people to be empowered, it is absurd to think that any individual has any modicum of control over what happens to their data um, at this day and age. It's just mm-hmm. a complete fantasy. Um, you know, I <laughs> am a privacy professional, I've been working in this space, I research this stuff. Um, you know, I struggle, right? to make sure I have all the correct optimal settings at all times on every device in every context. And even then there's no evidence or proof that those settings are actually doing what they're intended to do, and they can sort of counteract each other. And so I think to people, I would say this is not on you. Mm. Um, just like there are concerns around um, environmental things like pollution and drinking water, and um you know, just like we have building codes and um, safety standards. These are um, collective concerns that need to be addressed in a way that takes the burden off of the individual, uh, that doesn't ask the individual to, um, to, to be fully responsible for this, because again, that's that's an absurdity. Um, and so it's sort of to the individual, I guess it's to be aware that this is you know, not their issue and to hold their law policymakers accountable for uh, not treating it as such, mm-hmm. um, I think to you know the C-suite and uh, executives at large companies, um, I, you know the the heretofore sort of technocratic approach to securing and protecting data has probably bought uh, bought you some time and has worked, but I don't think it's going to work going forward. Um, I do think that there is an increasing sense, as we spoke about the start of this conversation, a felt sense that. Um, the way things work now is sort of not okay, <laughs> mm-hmm. and the harms are becoming more visceral. And I think that's going to create sort of a cultural um, shift towards embracing this more, um, this broader human rights-based approach. Um, I think AI is actually doing us a huge service in surfacing some of those issues and in having people recognize that you know privacy isn't enough. There's certainly privacy in the way of protecting data isn't enough. That there are much bigger concerns in general um, about the way that we relate to technology, and so um, you know, while that's a double-edged sword because we're gonna have to feel the pain at the same time, it sort of I think will enlighten people about what's at stake. Um, and sorry, who were the others?
1: Uh, entrepreneurs.
0: Well, entrepreneurs. I mean, it's interesting because um, you know I think where we really need innovation. You know, so laws have traditionally tried to, especially around tech governance, right? Laws have been very um, sensitive to not not quelling innovation, right? They wanna be sort of pro-innovation. This is continually a thing. It's still a thing even in the new legislative package in the EU. Um, And I I think that we're gonna have to push back against that historical uh, default because I think that what we're seeing through AI, machine learning and other technologies is that um, there are some things that we're not gonna be able to correct after the fact. As market failures or as harms because they're sort of irreparable, and they, um, it's actually a lot more important to have what we call ex ante mechanisms in the law. So things that address those harms and those potential market failures before they occur. So this might mean you know anything from more scrutiny of of mergers and acquisitions um, to actual uh, safety standards around you know the way that certain things are built, or even um, outright bans on certain uses of technology. Um, But I think what it means for entrepreneurs is that the real innovation here will be in um, not any particular technology, but in offering up a better um, business model, right? So what we've seen that's been very nefarious in the last um, 20 to 30 years has been what Shoshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism and this entire economy sort of built on the harvesting and exploitation of personal data. it feels like everyone's pretty tired of that. Um, at the same time, we all tend to feel pretty powerless. Um, but it does seem that you know, if and when that that startup comes along that finds a better business model, uh, it will be a breakthrough, and there will be huge appetite for it. And um, and then they won't be the only ones, right? And so hopefully, we then see this sort of uh, systemic change occurring. Um, and you know, these shifts have occurred in the past. So I'm not I'm not <laughs> optimistic every day. Um, but it just sort of takes, um, that shift in perspective, um, to hopefully, you know, to hopefully give us a glimmer of another, that another way is possible.